This podcast is a production of Trans World Radio United Kingdom. For further information, please go to our website www.twr.org.uk. This is Trans World Radio. My guest this morning is Timothy Paul Jones, and he's the author of a number of books and the co-author with James Garlow and April Williams of The Da Vinci Codebreaker, published by Bethany House in the United States. And uh, he joins me this morning to answer some of the questions posed by Dan Brown's novel, The Da Vinci Code. Timothy, good morning. Good morning. How are you? I'm fine. Now, what is The Da Vinci Code for those who don't know? Well, it is a novel that uh, has been a runaway bestseller in so many ways. And uh, the, the substance of the novel is to do with codes and cryptic codes and plots and everything like that that are going on. But the, uh, the substance of it that uh, has caused a lot of people some consternation and all of that has to do with the fact that uh, it makes many claims about Jesus that stand in stark distinction to what the uh, New Testament has to say about Jesus, claiming, for example, the central code that is, is unlocked or broken in the book is that uh, Jesus Christ was married to Mary Magdalene and uh, that they had a child had a child and all sorts of things like that that end up being interwoven with the Knights Templar and all these uh, different things of that sort, which all of that would cause no difficulty or anything like that if it weren't for the fact that Dan Brown on the first pages of his novel uh, stated that all of the descriptions in the novel were true. And uh, that has caused a lot of people to question uh, the truth of what he's saying as well as the truth of Christian faith and uh, has caused a good bit of controversy as a result of that. What sort of evidence does Dan Brown provide for his assertion that Jesus was married? Well, he claims that it was actually part of the record of the early church, and the way he reconstructs history is a a very interesting way that doesn't really fit the evidence, uh, which is that there were an original group of Christians who emphasized the human aspects of who Jesus was, and that they wrote Gospels and did all of that, and then along 300s, in the early 300s AD, when uh, Constantine professed some degree of faith in Jesus Christ, I think it's questionable, of course, uh, historically, whether Constantine was really a believer, but he, he professed some sort of faith in Jesus Christ, and uh, at that time that all of the other Gospels, these other Gospels uh, that had once existed, were gathered up, burned, destroyed, all of that, though a few of them may have survived, and that uh, the four Gospels we have in the New Testament, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, uh, were edited to make Jesus appear godlike, and it was simply to uh, so that Constantine uh, could have better control, better power over the people. And uh, according to Dan Brown, for example, that there were more than 80, he claimed, Gospels uh, that were besides the, the ones that we find in our New Testament, and that some of those, he claims, uh, talk about Jesus having been married to Mary Magdalene and some things that uh, would relate to that. What does Dan Brown claim about the divinity of Jesus? Uh, he claims that the divinity of Jesus actually was decided by a vote um, at the Council of Nicaea, which was convened by Emperor Constantine. And the difficulty with that is that when they came together at the Council of Nicaea, they were not coming together to decide whether Jesus was or was not, or had not or had been God. They were gathering together in response to a presbyter named Arius, who had claimed uh, that there was a time when Jesus, was, the, the Son did not exist. In other words, that uh, Jesus was a created being, and they were coming together to hammer out, is this really what the Bible claims about Jesus? 
And uh, and the other th- item that, Dr. that Dan Brown claims on that, he says it was a close vote at that. Uh, now, the difficulty with that is that the records vary a little bit on that, but there were over 300 people there, definitely, and there were only two negative votes. Now, I don't know where he comes up with that being a close vote, uh, even at that point, but uh, it wasn't a vote to determine whether Jesus was God, and even if it had been, it wasn't a close vote. What does the uh, early church evidence tell us about what the early Christians thought about Jesus' divinity? And that is really a crucial point. What does the earliest evidence tell us? Now, I think it's first off important to think about what the first fragments of Gospels that we have are. The earliest fragment of a Gospel that exists is the John Rowland's Papyrus 457, or also it's known as uh, as P52, and that fragment is somewhere around 100 A.D. Uh, If you look at the different scripts of all these different manuscripts that would shift over time, the one that that one is nearest to, the way the the letters are made and all of that, which is how uh, uh, papyrologists determine uh, those different, uh, how they were, when they were written, and the nearest one to it is called Papyrus Fayum 110. It was found in Fayum, Egypt, and uh, it actually tells uh, how to um, water the olive trees. <laughs> it's a little note about that. But the way the letters are written in that is very, very close to the uh, this little fragment of the Gospel of John from John chapter 18. Now let's think about, we know then that around 100 A.D., that the Gospel of John was in wide circulation, it had made it all the way to Egypt, and that's the earliest evidence we have of a Gospel. And the Gospel of John very clearly deter- it very clearly states that Jesus is divine. It begins, in the beginning was the Word, the Word was with God, the Word was God. John twenty twenty eight. later on, uh, Thomas falls down to his knees and says, and calls Jesus my Lord and my God. And so in the very earliest fragments that we have, uh, we know that the, the early Church affirmed that. But not only that, the letters of Paul affirm that Jesus was in some sense divine, and the letters of Paul, uh, they, they were written in the middle of the first century, the middle to the, the latter portion of the first century, but even pushing back beyond that, let's even go past beyond that, that the, in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, there's a little snippet of what we know from the way it is constructed of oral tradition that can be traced back to the Aramaic language, and that's where Aramaic was mostly spoken, was in Judea and Jerusalem, those areas there, and then up into Galilee. And even those who do not believe in the divinity of Jesus and the resurrection of Jesus will admit that that first part of 1 Corinthians chapter 15, uh, that it says that Jesus Christ died for our sins, that he was raised from the dead, that that emerged less than three years after the time when Jesus was believed to have died. And so we can trace back through all those different things that the Church believed certain crucial things about Jesus Christ from the very beginning of the time that they began to proclaim the Word about Him. Now, if you look at the Gnostic texts and these texts that are outside of the New Testament, they simply cannot claim to be that early with any degree of rationality. They begin to emerge towards the end of the first century, probably, and uh, according to some scholars, they don't even really begin to emerge till the middle of the second century uh, that these texts begin to emerge. What evidence do we have from the Church Fathers about Jesus' divinity, uh, say, from the second century? That's a very, uh, very good point. 
point to do with what the church fathers have to say, and uh, let's kind of go through a little bit of that, thinking some of the crucial church fathers that try, that were at the late first, early second century. One of the best examples would be Ignatius of Antioch. Ignatius of Antioch uh, was he wrote several letters to different churches as he made a trip to Rome to be martyred. And uh, Ignatius of Antioch he clearly states a couple of different times in his letters he says you should worship Christ as God. And so again he's making a very clear affirmation of the deity of Jesus Christ. Now another uh, a point that's important to make from that same time period is that not only was it the Christians that worshipped Jesus Christ as God, but those who were non-believers knew that Christians did that. Uh, there's a letter, a correspondence between uh, Pl- Pliny and Trajan. Uh, Trajan was the emperor at this time, Pliny was a governor, and they were trying to figure out what on earth do we do with these Christians. It was written about A.D. 112, and, and in 112 A.D. that says that they gather together uh, on the first day of the week, and they worship Christ as God. They worship Christ as a God. And so, uh, even from the perspective of the Romans, looking from the outside in, they could tell that they were worshiping Jesus Christ as divine, and that was in the first century and early second century. Why does Dan Brown not take this early evidence into account? I think very honestly that he is, um, he's in some sense stepping outside of his degree of expertise and his own knowledge. Uh, I don't want to attribute uh, really nefarious motives or anything like that to Dan Brown. I think in many, many cases, he simply was relying on evidence and sources that are faulty sources. For example, he draws a great deal to the point that there was a a lawsuit about it. Uh, He draws a great deal uh, from a book called Holy Blood, Holy Grail, and uh, that book is very blatantly uh, what one might call a pseudo-history. Uh, there are just the use of evidences in it is simply ranges from false to ludicrous. Uh, much of the time, the evidences that they draw from, uh, evidences that don't fit in the context that they're claiming they fit in, or that come from much later time periods, or that in some cases are irrelevant to the cases that they're trying to make with reference to Jesus and Mary Magdalene and some issues such as that. Is he still insisting that all the evidence in the book is factual and historical? Uh, the last I heard that he had he had made some claims of that sort, but uh, as we when we wrote Da Vinci Codebreaker and and some things after that, I know that persons tried to make contact with him, and he was simply offering no comment uh, on a lot of these issues. And so, the truth be told, I, I don't know on that. Uh, I just know that at the level of the publisher and some things like that, there was a no comment uh, about a lot of those things. What does Dan Brown believe about the resurrection? Uh, I do not know what he personally believes about the resurrection, um, but I certainly uh, think that he, he does not, if we take what he's saying in the book, that he does not believe that, uh, that Jesus was, was raised from the dead uh, in the, the way that the classic Christian idea would be. Um, I think if he's drawing from the Holy Blood, Holy Grail, and some of those things like that, that those authors, what they are proclaiming is that uh, Jesus was somehow revived or something of that sort, uh, which, if you are familiar with ancient crucifixion practices, uh, it would be an extreme rarity and certainly would be nothing that would convince people that someone was the Lord of life once they had gone through crucifixion. Uh, crucifixion was something brutal and vulgar and ugly and, uh, and almost, in, in, with very few exceptions, deadly uh, within a relatively brief period of time. How was the canon of our Bible actually formed? And that is a, that's one of the points that Dan Brown raises that is so important for us to understand, because in that case, he takes several facts that are partly true 
true, but he forms them together in a way that is not. Now, it is true that AD 367 is when the first list of exactly the same 27 books that we have circulates. It circulates from Athanasius of Alexandria. But here's the, the short answer to your question, and it is simply this, that from the very beginning, the crucial question that Christians asked was, did this document come from an eyewitness or a close associate of an eyewitness of Jesus Christ? And if it did not, then the churches simply did not accept it as being uh, authentic and something that could uh, be used in the church's worship and in the church's liturgy. Uh, the concept we think of as a canon comes later. What they were thinking more in terms of, is this authoritative for the churches in such a way that we use it in the church's worship? And we know for certain that that was what went on, because, for example, in the middle of the second century, uh, there's a fragment towards the middle to the end of the second century, there's a fragment called the Muratorian Fragment. And in the Muratorian Fragment, there's a book that is popular at this time called The Shepherd of Hermas. It's wildly popular uh, in, the, in the ancient church. And this book called Shepherd of Hermas, it was so popular that some people were saying, well, let's just read it with the rest of the Old Testament, New Testament, and our churches. And the author of this little listing says, no, 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 you can't do that because it comes after the time of the apostolic eyewitnesses and after the time of the Old Testament prophets. Therefore, we cannot read it in that way. It cannot be authoritative for Christians. And so this is all the way back in the middle of the second century that they are making determinations on that basis of eyewitness testimony, and that continues to be. Certainly there are books that were argued about all the way through uh, the first couple of 300 years of the Church's history, but the question was not, should we vote that this book goes in or vote that this book goes out? The question was, can we reliably connect this document to an eyewitness or close associate of an eyewitness of Jesus Christ? So the New Testament then would have been formed by the time of Constantine? It would have definitely been formed by the time of Constantine, at least in the core of what is in it. There are about 1920 books of the New Testament, including the Gospels, the four Gospels, the book of Acts, the letters of Paul, at least one letter of John and First Peter, and probably the book of Revelation that were not questioned in the history of the Church. There are a few books that they were still arguing about at the time of Constantine, but it is absolutely crucial to understand that the essence of the New Testament was absolutely established long before Constantine was even born. The essence of the New Testament, the core of what was in there, was established, and the arguments they had afterwards were not about what Constantine said or didn't say. It was about, are we absolutely certain we can connect this to an eyewitness of Jesus Christ? Why does uh, Dan Brown claim that the Church borrows everything from paganism, or borrowed everything from paganism? I think it's probably relying on some sources such as Tom Harper's Pagan Christ. Uh, there's some certain books that uh, claim that. And the difficulty with that is, in the first place, if you really look at the parallels that they draw, the parallels are not nearly as close as, uh, as they claim to be. For example, I was just doing some research recently on parallels between Mithras and Jesus Christ. And, uh, and, and one of those, and there's some claims that Mithras, who was a sun god, a solar deity, and uh, there are some claims that Mithras was born of a virgin in a cave on December 25th. And they said, therefore, that was all borrowed from, uh, from Mithraism in Christianity. Now, the problem with that is, he was born in a cave, sort of, if you actually look at the Persian sources about Mithras, you'll find that what happened is he was born literally from the rock. But Mithras was born out of the rock. 
Um, and, and I guess you could call that a virgin birth, although how a rock can be virginal or not virginal, I don't know. <laughs> but he's born out of a rock. I don't know how do, lo- how do rocks lose their virginity or whatever. I don't know how that all works. But Mithras is born out of a rock, and they claim that that's a virgin birth in a cave. And not only that, the date of December 25th is, is something that's from much later in the Church's history. The New Testament makes absolutely no claim about the uh, about the date of, of the uh, birth of Jesus. And so that's just one example of, of how they will take these certain facts from Mithraism and other religions and say, oh, that's like this in Christianity. But if you trace back those sources, those connections are simply poor connections. Yeah, but what does Dan Brown claim about the Dead Sea Scrolls? It makes a very ridiculous claim about the Dead Sea Scrolls. That was one of the two times in that book when I was reading Da Vinci Code that I actually laughed because it was just so bad it was funny. And that was he claims that the uh, the Dead Sea Scrolls include Christian records, uh, and and the vast majority of scholarship would tell us very clearly that uh, the Dead Sea Scrolls were copied. They were done before. Uh, Christians ever came to predominance of any kind, and he groups them with uh, the Nag Hammadi documents, which are from much later. They're Gnostic documents found in Egypt much, much later, and he groups them all together as uh, representing some of the earliest records about Jesus Christ. And the Dead Sea Scrolls would certainly represent early records about Jesus Christ because they come from hundreds of years before Jesus Christ. And so, uh, uh, But there's really, except for the one possible fragment in the Dead Sea Scrolls that some scholars of claim to come from Mark, and I don't find that to be convincing at all, uh, the evidence for that. There really is no good evidence that there's anything in the Dead Sea Scrolls that is Christian in any way, shape, or form. Well, what, in fact, are the Dead Sea Scrolls? The Dead Sea Scrolls are a group of uh, documents that were copied by a group of people known as the Essenes, or the Qumran community, and they were a group that they had become so sick and tired of the corruption in the temple at that time that they decided they were going to pull out from society and that they were going to uh, have this, this area that they lived in, that they maintained pure and holy lives in this area. Now, they would sometimes go into Jerusalem. They weren't a, a monastery in a sense that they would uh, cut themselves completely off from society. But in that, in that place, they would copy these scrolls over and over, these scrolls, and give commentaries on the Old Testament text. And so what we find primarily in the Dead Sea Scrolls are Old Testament texts or commentaries on Old Testament texts, or they will be um, rules for their community for how to live out the Old Testament texts. And so it's very rooted in the Jewish scriptures in the, in the Old Testament, and uh, the, it simply is not, uh, does not give us information about Jesus Christ in any way. What does Dan Brown believe is the importance of some of the early Gnostic documents? Well, what he believes is the importance of the early Gnostic documents is that they tell, in his uh, terminology, the true story about Jesus. Um, and he claims that the true story was that Jesus was a human being, married Mary Magdalene, and all those different uh, aspects of, uh, that he argues for. Now, the difficulty for that is, is in the first place, with very few exceptions, the Gnostic documents present Jesus as not being human at all. In the Gnostic documents, Jesus is a spirit who only seems human. That's an, a heresy that was known in the early Church as docetism, which comes from the Greek word dokeo, uh, which means to seem or to appear. And so Jesus only seemed or appeared human, according to these Gnostic documents. So in the first place, he's completely off in the fact that the Gnostic documents don't present Jesus as being human. They present him as a spiritual being who seemed 
human, and yet he places those as, as telling an, an opposite story from what they tell, and in addition to that, places them earlier and closer to the actual events than the New Testament documents, which he simply cannot uh, substantiate. He pulls out a couple of verses from two of the Gnostic Gospels, uh, the Gospel of Philip and the Gospel of Mary, and uh, turns those into evidence that Jesus married Mary Magdalene, and uh, this was the second time I laughed when I was reading. He claims that, as any Aramaic scholar will tell you, uh, a certain terminology meant that Mary was the spouse or the consort of Jesus. It's a word uh, that uh, is rooted in the Greek word koinonia. Uh, it means a partner. It's what the word actually means. But what's funny is that text never existed in Aramaic. And he says that this test, text existed in Aramaic. Any Aramaic scholar will tell you uh, that, um, that the, this is affirming that Jesus and Mary Magdalene were married. The problem is, if you go through uh, the Greek words in which those Coptic words, it's actually written in Coptic, were rooted, it actually just means partner is all it means, and it's a very loose term uh, for partner, and it does not uh, mean consort or spouse in any way, shape, or form. The other one he pulls out for Jesus being married to Mary Magdalene is how uh, Jesus used to kiss Mary on thee, and that's what the Coptic text says. There's a hole in the text right there, and we don't know where he kissed her, and in a culture in which people kissed one another uh, as a way of greeting, it seems more likely that Jesus, it's letting him know that he, he greeted her, uh, was glad to see her in some sense, and yet again has nothing to do with Jesus possibly having been married to Mary Magdalene. What specific claims does Dan Brown make about the Roman Catholic Church? Well, he puts the, in the first place, he puts the Roman Catholic Church far too early. The Roman Catholic Church, as we know it, and as we would identify it, and especially as he, uh, he often uses the word Vatican to refer to it, which does not come until far later than, uh, than he's speaking of, he, and he puts the Roman Catholic Church way early um, in, in, in assumes some power structures that didn't exist at that time, and not only does he do that, then he blames the Roman Catholic Church for many different things that... Uh, that the Roman Catholic Church uh, really was not, as we know it, involved in uh, such in the terms of the formation of the uh, of the the formation of the beliefs about Jesus. These things preceded by a long shot. They preceded any distinction of a certain Roman Catholic or Eastern Orthodox or any of those clusterings of that sort. Um, the other thing is he claims that the Roman Catholic Church uh, during the Inquisition uh, burned an astonishing number uh, way up in the... and he, though he makes a number that is up in the millions far beyond what actually happened in the Inquisition. Now this is not to say the Inquisition was somehow good or positive or anything like that, but the truth is that very, very few uh, witches were actually burned at the stake, and uh, the conditions under which they were were far different um, than what he, he claims. And again, the Roman Catholic Church ends up, even though that was primarily done by secular governments, uh, the Roman Catholic Church ends up being the one uh, blamed for all of that, too. How extensive are the art fallacies in the book? The artistic fallacies, and this I, I must admit I'm relying on secondary evidence of having spoken with uh, persons who have expertise in this area, and they simply uh, say that everything Dan Brown says about um, about the artistic parts is pretty much wrong, and that was that's actually what somebody said is it's just all wrong. Uh, from the very name of Leonardo da Vinci, da Vinci he is not called da Vinci; uh, he should be called Leonardo. Da Vinci simply means where he is from. It's a reference to his place of origin, and so from the very fact 
of the name he uses um, to the fact that, for example, in the uh, he speaks of how the one the person beside Jesus in the Last Supper painting was supposedly uh, is supposedly Mary Magdalene simply because the person looks effeminate. And yet, if you look at all the other different paintings of that same time period that are undisputably of John, you will find as you look at those that John was at that time very traditionally painted. In a, in, a, in a manner that we would call, looking back today, it, although it wasn't considered to be necessarily that then, we would look at it today as being looking somewhat feminine in his appearance. And, uh, and he makes claims uh, that with, without any understanding of the context of what else is being painted at that time and what the conventions of painting, for example, John the Apostle were at that time. Why does he argue that uh, Leonardo's paintings contain secret clues? Well, I think he argues that really because in the first place it makes a good novel. It really does. It, we take these iconic images of Mo- Mona Lisa and Last Supper and we turn these into secret codes. That just makes a great novel. I mean, in, in, in one sense, uh, from the fact of, of something that it's, it's an image that people are familiar with and you try to reveal to them there was something there that you never saw before. Now, I think he honestly probably has some degree of belief on the sources he's used uh, that there are some sort of secret codes about Jesus and all of that, and I simply think that he uh, he is operating outside of his his league in terms of the claims he is making and the sources he is relying on. A final question: Why is he so interested in secret societies? Uh, again, I think it makes a good novel. Uh, people always want to think about uh, those like that, and uh, and I think he wants to have some sort of a desire to reveal something that has not been revealed before. I really believe that deep inside, Dan Brown is at some level searching, seeking for truth. Uh, and I, I would encourage persons who are Christians uh, to, rather than being angry with him, rather than speaking hatefully about him, to uh, rather than speaking in any of those sorts of ways, to pray for Dan Brown, to be gracious toward him, yes, to disagree with what he has to say, but to recognize also he has opened an incredible opportunity, and I honestly believe that he is seeking truth, and there are people that he has opened up to seek truth. Now, I, I don't think that you're going to find it, to find that truth in the Da Vinci Code, but I do believe that where people authentically seek truth, that truth, and I believe truth with a capital T, that it has a name, and the name is Jesus Christ, that truth can be found, and to pray for the people who are seeking truth, and pray that they will seek it in the right direction and in the right person. And after all, Dan Brown is a terrific storyteller. Well, I think he is, anyway. There we are. Uh, Timothy Paul Jones, the co-author with James Garlow and April Williams of The Da Vinci Codebreaker, which is published in the States by Bethany House. Uh, Timothy, thank you so much. Thank you for having me.